Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Sadak, TV voice of the Cincinnati Reds, and you're up for Late Night Reds Talk. Hello, everybody. My name is Tim Daniel, and welcome to tonight's edition of Late Night Reds Talk Live, the live show and podcast that loves the Cincinnati Reds, part of the Believe Podcast Network, presented as always by Bet Online. This show is live streamed on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and the podcast version is always up the next morning. I am joined tonight, as always, by our good friends Nick Kirby and Carlos Guevara, and our very special guest. The man who's given us way more publicity this season than necessary. We're very grateful for. And the guy who does our introduction, if you just heard his voice on the thing here, Mr. John Sadak. Before we get to John and talk about everything going on with the Reds, Nick's going to come on here and tell you guys all about our partners at Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first of market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, NHL. Combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in game betting, props, and futures. Head to Bet Online today or use your mobile device today to join and make your first sports bet. Use our promo code BELIEVE50, that is B L E A V 50, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online is where the game starts. All right, well, we, like I said, we do have John Sadak here. And, John, first off, before we get into the conversation of everything today, uh, we definitely have to say thank you because this season you have mentioned Late Night Reds Talk not once but twice during game broadcasts, which has led to a lot of people finding us. Um, so, one, we're very grateful and we love having a friendship with you. And, two, I owe you a Late Night Reds Talk T-shirt. So before we, when we get out of here tonight, make sure you send me your T-shirt size. You got it. I'm, uh, I'm glad to give pub because you guys do great work. I I, I watch you guys often. Uh, I love the passion that you have. I love how researched and prepared you are. I, I love the the angles that you take on things. Uh, I I feel like I learn every time I watch you guys, and it's you know you can learn from so many different places. You guys know what you're talking about, and you do it in a fun and entertaining way. And, and I'm all for it. Thank you for having me. Well, we're definitely appreciated, man. So we're so excited to have you back. How are things going, man? You know, obviously we're kind of in the dog days. We're, you know, in the last full months of the season. Um, the trade deadlines obviously passed, but you having your first year on the road, kind of hanging out with the ball club a little more and having more access. How are things for John Sadak in the 2021 uh, two season? Great. Uh, great. It's, it's a dream come true still every day. Uh, the worst day in the majors is better than the best day in the minors. And it's not close. And uh, and so I think I have probably a different perspective than some others. Not all. There, there are some of my peers that have lived that that same life. Um, and I, I try to think of myself as and live life as a pretty positive person, a realist. I, I want to be frank and honest about things at times, but uh, but to look at things glass half full whenever possible. And it, it couldn't be more full. I mean, this is just it's been great. We love living here. Um, you know, our, our daughter just started school this week. Uh, so th- th- that's the only, if there were any bummer to it, it's just that it's the time away from home. You know, it's for something that I adore and I love, and I've wanted to do for a long, long time. Um, uh, but you know, when you have kids, that's, th- th- that's a challenge, but outside of that, everything else is awesome. 
I, I really couldn't be better outside of more wins. That, that'd be about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'd all be better with more wins. Uh, so we are, we are feeling you there as well. Um, but let's talk about today. Obviously, um, another outstanding performance from Nicola Dolo coming off, you know, not having his best first inning in their field of dreams game, uh, bouncing back, pitching really well today against a good Phillies team, seven innings of only five hits and eight strikeouts. Uh, Jose Barrero, obviously getting the game winning, uh, walk off single, uh, in the, in the bottom of the ninth and Alexis Diaz coming in throwing two excellent innings of, uh, of relief, uh, kind of seeing that bridge kind of grow in there. So John calling this game today, uh, I'm sure, you know, calling walk-offs is never not, is never, is always fun is what I'm trying to say. You know, there's, there's nothing more enjoyable I'm sure than saying, you know, calling a walk-off victory, but today kind of having the bird's eye view from where you guys sit, what did you see from Nick Lodolo today that really jumped out to you? To me, he was the biggest story of the day until the awful news with Joey Votto that we learned about postgame. Uh, Lodolo was as sharp, as clean as I think we have seen him this year. And and to some extent, dealing with base runners, I thought, elevated that even a touch more. Uh, it was pretty obvious early in the game that the breaking ball was just special. It, it was probably the best that his breaking ball has looked so far. And he was able to not only land it for strikes, uh, but also intentionally throw it out of the zone. And it had such depth that it was getting silly swings. I mean, the way he handles both lefties and righties is incredibly impressive. Um, his willingness and ability to throw in something I know Barry Larkin adores with the fastball. Uh, but I think you saw a layered approach to how he can be truly effective multiple times through the order. Um, and I think Nick said this himself. I listened to some of his comments uh, when I was out walking the dog earlier, and he talked about how he progressively felt better and was executing better as the game wore on. Um, yeah, in a rookie season, you're going to have ups and downs. You know, the guys are going to have longtime veterans have clunker bad games once in a while. Um, we haven't seen real clunkers from Nick, and his best games have been really encouraging and that was a pretty good lineup now yeah, the Phillies don't have Schwarber they, they don't have Harper it's kind of true of almost every lineup at some point somebody's either not producing or is not healthy it's a pretty good lineup and, and I thought he looked excellent as good as complete as we have seen him so far and I still think he's scratching the relative surface of what he can be in another year or two yeah, one of my biggest um, takeaways from from watching Nick has been his in game in game adjustments. If something's not working, he he stops after you know after a little while he real, he realizes it, and I think that just comes from being a little bit older, pitching in college, you know, pitching at an, at an elite level in college. Um, you get that experience to where you know the younger guys they're going to have to experience that. It sucks that it's at the big league level for them, but it's a thing. It's a, a leg up that that Nick has, and it's it's pretty obvious to see. You know, somebody who's who's watched a lot of these types of games um, from these types of players. Um, that's one thing that really sticks out with me with Nick is his his in game adjustments and the fact that he's he's walking less and less folks. Um, that's that's a really big deal for me. Yeah, and I think his calmness, the way he stays so level all the time, is such an aid for him. You know, I hearkened back to, what was it? It was like 40-something pitches that he had in that one giant laborious inning right after the Reds had given him that touchdown lead. And and his, you know, not only the physical makeup, that, that he's able to, to process that and get through it. Um, 
And, and I'm curious, Carlos, what your thoughts are too today on Austin Romine's involvement in calling that game and kind of the simpatico feel of of reading the swings and these hitters because it it felt like that was part of it too to your point about those adjustments that as the game wore on I I agree with you like I I thought it became more rhythmic and it was almost like he was leveling up and then like with each successive turn of the order he was more well equipped to handle the hitters yeah yeah for sure that's why you know at, at the beginning of the year i was hoping that they would bring in somebody with a little bit more experience to back up tyler for just you know this reason alone like you know, his offensive production, great. Whatever they can get from him, awesome. But his sole job is to groom these guys and take them through these in-game experiences that you cannot just talk about pre-game, um, mid-game on the bench. It's got to be, like I've said before, it's it's like a, a significant other. There's, there's something that's going on with just eye movement of a little head nod of a little glove wave. There's this romantic thing that goes on between the catcher and the pitcher. And to have somebody there with that much experience, it's, it's so valuable. And and it shows. Lodola is up to almost 12 strikeouts per nine, which is just really incredible to me. How, how much, how many bats he's missing. And really the only knock on him this year is the walks, which has never really been a problem for him, which is just really gets me excited for how high can the ceilings go? How high can this guy's ceiling really be when, you know, the one thing we expect that he's going to be a lot better at um, he has been only his only real deficiency this year? Yeah, and I think when you look at his misses, even not just only in his walks, but uh, even if he goes to a three-ball count and then gets the guy out or he reaches with a hit, whatever, he doesn't miss significantly. His misses are still relatively close. Um, and, and that's just so encouraging that he's able to, to stick with it to that extent and that he is that that close to being like truly on point. It's to the point where like it wouldn't shock me if he has, you know, maybe not exactly perfect game, no hitter, but he's going to flirt with something like that relatively early in his career uh, because he has the perfect arsenal. Now, uh, yeah, this is something I spoke with Barry Larkin about a little bit off air during the game. I, to me, the one other thing that you do see from time to time, and we saw it more early when it looked like the game might have been a little fast. There might have been a little bit of other, you know, nervous energy for a guy who's generally very level. Is it, it's a Castillo-esque kind of look that's left instead of right. You know, he has that funky arm angle that comes down, and that arm angle is a great asset. I, I think it helps him against both righties and lefties. But at the same time, he can get a little bit of run where he misses just off target in the same kind of spot and, uh, you know, at times can hit a guy too. Um, And Barry said that he thought that that's a good thing. Like he kind of liked that. Now you don't want that to happen too often. You don't want to totally lose command, but the idea that you, you have a little bit of wild in you that is not always exactly precise makes it an even more uncomfortable at bat. And I, I think, through many of the the games pitched we've seen through the entire Red Staff and from some of the opponents this year, it's been an excellent example of what what can happen to a hitter when he is comfortable versus when he's not comfortable and and how that manifests itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest things, or if not the main thing, that a hitter will tell you. What can a pitcher do to disturb you uh, is to make them uncomfortable. And if that's a couple of wild pitches here and there, so be it. You know, that's 
it's the whole it's the name of the game. Keep them uncomfortable, keep them unbalanced, change speeds, and good luck. Obviously, the other big thing today, we'll get to Joey, obviously, because it just sucks. It's terrible news, obviously. But uh, John, I know you, like us, are pretty involved in the Reds Twitter, and you see the comments and the tweets and the, the good and the bad. Um, Jose Barrero, obviously being a Reds Twitter fan favorite, uh, has a big moment today with the walk-off single. And I think we're kind of at this point, and we've talked about this quite a bit this year with Nick Liddell and Hunter Green, um, where I'm not necessarily overtly concerned about like what their ERA says at the end of the season. I understand it's in the back of their baseball card. I understand like it's going to like be with them for their careers. With Jose Barrero, I'm not necessarily concerned with what his batting average says on his 23 tops from the 22 season. I'm more concerned with, is he growing in the box? Is he getting more comfortable? And today, you know, that hit the, the game winning hit he had, you could tell it's kind of like a very confident swing. Obviously he had that Saturday night game a couple weeks ago in Milwaukee where he had two homers. Uh, but to see him and kind of see him, you know, 24 years old, looks like he could play outside linebacker in the NFL. Um, just really, really athletic dude. Who's really learning more and more professional baseball. What do you kind of take away from him? Again, I know it's hard with 50 at-bats so far this year, but we're starting to finally see that growth that people have been asking for from him for a while now. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I would agree with you that uh, I, I think the process matters way more than the results with Jose. I love the fact that it seems like the team is very committed to having him basically every day at shortstop for the rest of the season. I think it's a smart move on many levels. Um he did not hit great at double A, triple A this year. He hit poorly. I mean, last year he he was awesome. Um, and that's, I think, something is going to have him somewhat behind the eight ball no matter what. You know, you're coming off a handmade injury that a lot of hitters, it's a wide spectrum in how guys recover from that, both physically and then how that can mentally affect them thereafter. Um, so I, I think there's a little element of caution um, that comes with, you know, giving him a wider berth of time to really see what he is. Yeah. He was assuredly rushed when he was given that first crack in 20 and he was overmatched and he wasn't ready for that. I, very few guys would be, I mean, even guys that turn out to be household name, big league guys at that age at that experience level would endure similar types of struggles, making that kind of a leap. Um, I, I agree that the, the hit today, I mean, showed what he is capable of. Uh, to me, the bigger concern is pitch recognition and how he handles particularly you know, sliders down in the way. I mean, the book is is pretty obvious and it's out, and he knows it, and he's working on it constantly. Uh, he is out there doing early work regularly. He's acutely aware, but there is a, a difference between translating what you do you know, on the field in BP, what you do in the cage, and then what happens during a game. And the only way he can achieve that is by playing. Like he's got to go see live major league level game pitching. He's got to go see big league breaking balls. And, uh, you know, to, to snap an 0 for 10 and have a walk-off winner, you know, it's something that I had tweeted earlier today. This young man's adored a lot. You know, the, the loss of his mother when he was incredibly young uh, to a horrendous illness and to, you know, be, you know, a tremendous distance away, uh, adopted her name. Uh, as a, a way of paying homage to her. I, I can't imagine if I were at that age in a foreign country dealing with all of that. It, that's really hard. And you're trying to play an insanely difficult sport at the highest level that that exists. Um, and yet he constantly has a sense of joy about it. Every time I see him when he walks into the clubhouse or he's out of the field, he has a big smile on his face. And he's focused on work. 
You know, he's he, he's not just happy to be there. Um, but I, I don't know that we know yet. I don't know that he knows yet. I think that's probably the bigger part of it is that sense of confidence that, you know, kind of the cart and the horse, like I think has to be there to some extent too. Um, and I can understand if it's not consistently, uh, number one, because it's really friggin' hard to, to hit big league pitching. Um, and number two, because of some of the background elements and, and there is, I'm sure, a certain level of pressure. You know, he did not hit the minors this year. He was, the game plan was he's going in to compete. He and Farmer, you know, Dacto are competing essentially for the shortstop role. And I would believe that if Barrero hit, he probably would have won it, right? That that would have been the idea. They would have wanted the younger prospect guy to have those chances. But he gets hurt. Then he doesn't perform in the minors. And, you know, now in a somewhat hurried fashion, somewhat circumstantially due to what's happened between you know, the season, the record, what it is. You make trades that are smart trades, in my opinion, moves that they should have made. I applaud and think they, they did a nice job with all of that. Uh, this makes sense. And but until the end of the year, I, I really don't know. Like I, it kind of is day to day. You know, like you, you saw the day in Milwaukee with the two homers, and you know it's one home run. Even a couple of home runs does not even close to define a player. But it gets you optimistic, and the hit today gets you optimistic. And uh, and and I think we're going to see kind of peaks and valleys. And, and to your point, then the the final number might be marred. You know, as a result by default. Um, but what is the trend? And even if he's making outs, what kind of outs are they? Are they ball and play outs? Is it two strikeouts a game? Um, to me, that's the bigger concern. You got to cut down the strikeouts. You need to see more consistent signs of pitch recognition. If you can see that, then even if the average is sub 200, I would have reasons for some optimism uh, that he can help because he's already shown he can play more than one position. He's an excellent athlete, as you point out. Like That, to me, is what stands out when you see him in person. He's a big, strong, lean dude. Like he's, there's not an ounce of fat on his body. He of himself, and uh, and I still think there's reason for optimism that he can help you win games. Yeah, I agree. And you know, one of the other things you mentioned, all the adversity he's kind of faced. I'm sure you know, knowing that all the trades they made, was seeing that uh, a lot of those guys that they got in these trades put the same position as him. You know, you got to think that's like maybe he's not like. You know, obviously these guys are probably not going to play all play shortstop, obviously, but I'm sure that that's something that's kind of in his head too. Like, okay, they traded for all these guys that play what I play, but you know, and obviously guys change positions in the minors, but yeah, and I think that's a good thing. You know, I think that uh, that's an even more direct sense of competition, but akin to what we've seen with this rotation with the rookies. You know, I do think there is a certain aspect of Ashcraft and Green and Lodolo that gets elevated when each of them sees their teammate achieve at a high level in a good way. And most teams like, talk to those brave starters, you know, the, the Glavitt and Maddox and Smoltz, they'll tell you like they, they, they wanted to beat each other. Now they, they want to win. They want the best for the team. But, uh, but I think having that competition of prospects that are also labeled as of now at the shortstop position and just the volume of guys that are coming in general is good for everybody. Uh, to me, the, the, best way to to elevate play is to have as many good players competing and, and and i think that makes everyone better yeah i agree well unfortunately the reds lost one of those good players today um as was announced that joey vada did a uh, presser at the end of the game and announced that he is going to have season-ending surgery on friday to repair a torn rotator cuff mentioned that he's had this injury since 2015 
but hasn't dealt with it seriously until the last couple of months. Um, so Carlos, I know obviously having a personal relationship with Joey, uh, this is probably something where I know it <laughs> kind of, it definitely bums you out. Um, as you know, him being your friend, but also, you know, the big league player who he is and what he's meant to the city. Um, so for you, like, you know, knowing him the way you do, what do you kind of see as his kind of bounce back from this? Cause I know obviously at his age, the speculation comes out. It was like, will he just kind of forego next year? But I think the four of us definitely are in agreement that that's not happening. Yeah. I don't think anybody who knows Joey, even on the slightest level, um, is going to know that he's going to come back with a vengeance. Like he's already got his target date circled where he wants to be back swinging. Um, it sucks for the rest of us fans right now. Uh, cause we feel so badly for him because we know how much he puts into it. Um, like on a personal level, I really know how much he puts into it. Um, these are human beings, man. I mean, he's out there. He's only got a, you know, a certain window of opportunity to play at this level. And even though he's played at this level, as long as he has, um, he realizes where he's at in his career. And, and this, this time is valuable. You can't get this time back. Like he's never going to get these next two months back. And he knows that, um, but he's not going to focus on that. Um, us fans will probably focus on that more than he will because he's going to put all that energy back to getting himself to where he needs to be. And I guarantee you, he knows that he can still play and swing well at this level. Just this year has been tons of bad luck for the guy, you know, from being so excited coming into spring training and COVID missing with that bat. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on, but like, that's all in the past. Now he is where he is. Um, I'm just going to hope to to provide, you know, just friendship, positive energy. And um, on his side, let's get ready for 2023. Let's run it back. See what happens. John, obviously kind of being around the team on a day-to-day basis, we know what he means to the, you know, the, the, the 26 guys on the roster. How much do you feel kind of being around these guys that he's going to be missed more, not just us on the, you know, on the field, but kind of being that guy in the dugout. They're kind of like they're, you know, their leader. Yeah. I mean, he is, he's the face of the franchise. I mean, that's, that's really what I feel about uh, Joey Votto. And yeah, he's someone that the younger guys certainly look up to. He's such a, an established big league success. Um, I, I think when he is at his highs, there is a, an emotional cachet to his success. There's an electricity that comes in that ballpark. Uh, yeah, as, as difficult as the year has been by record, there have been a lot of moments in that stadium, even when the Reds were out of reach, even when the game was was not, you know, technically any game's winnable when you're down to your final out, but, you know, games where, where they're at a slam range and it's in the ninth and Votto comes up and if there's a guy or two on base, there's there is a buzz to that building because a lot of the people that are there want to see him achieve. And and I, that resonates. That that ripples. That dominoes. That's that's a human element. That is live sport. Um, but but I would echo the idea that uh, you know it was funny when I, I listened to his words from the presser. Um, I, I didn't know it readily. I, I had shot home because our, our daughter just started school today. It was her first day with all the kids. I wanted to see her as soon as I could. And I walk in, and my wife says to me, "Joey's out for the year." Joe Joe Burrow like did something happened to Joe Burrow 
Like, no, Joey Votto. Like, what, what are you talking about? He didn't play today. He can't be out for the year. And uh, and then I, I listened to his comments and I read some of the, uh, uh, the pieces that were written thereafter. And my immediate thought was comeback player of the year next season. Um, and and I also started thinking, like, what has he been dealing with? Like, what has this year already been like to get to this point? Um, like, what an achievement for the successes that he's had to play with that, you know, uh, and, and to eventually get to a point where multiple doctors say, like, you need to have surgery. Like, that, that's the best way to handle this. Um, but it's 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 gigantic. It's it's huge. And it's, I think, all the more enhanced and heightened by the fact that, you know, many of the other, well, well they didn't have the same years in cachet with the Reds that Joey did, but the other, you know, established players or players that had good years were traded away. You know, there, there isn't that same depth of that experienced, talented player. Um, it, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's gigantic. And, uh, and I just wish the, the very best for him. Um, and, and I would echo, you know, Carlos, Carlos knows way better than I do. But, you know, his, his work ethic is tremendous. I mean, throughout this time, he's been out there. He has his own session on the field doing early hitting, let alone what he's doing in the cage, constantly. I mean, the, the man is as self-aware of his body, what he needs to do to train, what he needs to do to hit, as anybody, I believe, that has ever played this game. And uh, if there's anybody that can come back from an injury like this and achieve at a high level at this stage of his career, it's Joey Votto. Yeah, I think we all echo those sentiments for sure, man. So excited to see what he does in 23. And uh, I'll I'll go to bed online and place to, that uh, those odds for comeback player of the year in 23. I'll, I'll do it. If John Sadek says it, damn it, I'm doing it too. <laughs> so we do want to kind of talk to you a bit about kind of the season in general um, and kind of what it's been like as the broadcaster. Um, so the first thing I want to uh, kind of get to is, you know, obviously – not difficult to recognize. They went three and 22 to start the year. They dug themselves a very deep hole um, for you kind of being the guy who your responsibility is more or less to kind of be entertaining and educational during a broadcast. Is it, I mean, I'm sure it's more difficult to do, you know, talk about a three and 22 team compared to like a nine and 12 team, but you know, was it difficult to necessarily keep getting the energy up game by game when they were going through that, str- that struggle? No, uh, I mean, I, I've covered uh, uh, bad seasons at much lower levels. Uh, so on a relative level, there's there's it's big league baseball. I mean, if you can't get up, I don't care what the record is or who's playing. If you can't get excited to watch the best players in the world play a game that matters, that you know goes in the record books forever, then you got to find a new profession. You you shouldn't be doing that. Um, I, I sincerely love game day, like, and and I'd love game day at every level, like, I, I, no matter what I was doing. Um, you know, I covered Princeton men's basketball when they, they won six games. They became the first division one team to lose to division two Chaminade at Maui in like 15 years. They, they had the two nothing lead against Duke in the opening tap and let up 17 unanswered A young James Harden went off for like 27 points against Arizona state. Um, and my energy doing a solo broadcast for most of those games, when you're at Lehigh in front of 37 fans on a cold January day was the same as it was for, you know, four years later when they're in the NCAA tournament, and they nearly beat a final four Kentucky team. Um, I mean, you want to get bigger for, you know, when the, the games matter even more when you are a playoff caliber team and you get that big win. Uh, but to me, that's, that's part of the, the sanctity of, of 
the game. Like I, I think as the broadcaster, that's the least I can do. These guys are busting their butts trying to win every single day, trying to take care of their bodies, trying to become the best. All I have to do is sit there and talk about it. Like if I can't get excited for that, like that, that's why I choose to do this. I, I, I wanted to do this because I legitimately, that's how I watch games. So a true story. Uh, what was that? The probably fourth date with my wife. We wound up watching a Super Bowl together, and uh, it it like both uh, made her delighted and into it. I was again. I'm not announcing. I'm just sitting on the couch watching the game. That's who I am. Like if I weren't an announcer, that I would be kind of saying and doing all the same things. It would just be me and my buddies, like either you know video chatting like this or actually sitting in the arena or stadium together. Um, so no, I, energy wise, it's still there. I, I think every game has its own story. I think there's always something going on. There's always a layer of strategy. There are always trends. There's always a humanized background to every single player. Uh, no matter if the game means the most possible, it's to, to cement a division or to win a world series, or if it's between two teams that are way below 500 at any other point in the season. Those games matter, and it's your job and it's your duty to deliver as best you can, and and you should want to. It should be an eight. Yeah, and I feel I mean we're like that with here here. You know, it's it's very easy to be like you know they're not good and not bring the same energy to a podcast each and every week when you cover a certain team. But you know we we tr- we do our best to make sure people enjoy hanging out with us, and we seem to think that's the case. So we're definitely grateful. Um, you know, you've talked a lot and you've been very open about your preparation for games and series and reading about everything with these people's lives. Um, well, this Reds team has had nearly 60 people put on a major league uniform this year. So what has your preparation been like getting to know guys like Michael Papirski, who like had like no major league at bats and was all of a sudden on the major league roster because of Anita Ketcher and, you know, all these, you know, all these like revolving doors and relievers who have been coming in and up and up. What has the preparation been like for you? Is it like when you see the announcement of the transaction, the guy's been called up, do you immediately look their info up? Or like, how are you doing this with so many guys in and out of the major league roster this year? Yeah, I have like a running series of word docs that I just kind of like add to and edit and change around um, that are kind of like my running Bible. And I have one for every team. And that way I can I can copy and paste stuff as somebody moves to a different organization and have some background. Um, and then some stuff I intentionally get rid of uh, or I'll just strike through because I know like I've already told the story enough, but I don't want to accidentally tell it again because I might forgot that I told it before. Uh, but on a relative level, my first year in AAA, I was in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, doing the Yankees AAA team. I was both the PR guy and the announcer. So I had to do all the transactions and the game notes and everything else. Um, they set the International League all-time record by using 75 different players that year. They had 230-something transactions, most of which I wasn't technically allowed to announce, sometimes didn't even know to announce until like half an hour before the game. So I'm on the air of the pregame show, editing the roster. And then, you know, that includes heights and weights and background stats and all that kind of stuff. Um, And trying to get that out while I'm also announcing that and getting ready to call the game um, and making edits to game notes and trying to send that out to the other covering media. Um, There were two guys on the team. I want to say that were on the opening day roster, the backup catcher, Bobby Wilson, and reliever Jim Miller that were still active and on the roster at the end of the year. Everyone else hurt, traded, demoted, promoted, whatever. 
Um, so on a relative level, and, and keep in mind, like, yes, it's AAA, so there are some guys that have some big league time. Some are even more established. But the overwhelming majority, especially that year, were, were not. And that was even harder. Like, guys that had never, for the most part, been above AA to then have that same kind of revolving door to get something meaty or interesting because it's you're really looking at their their college bios that just have like you know 20 bullet points uh you know father so and so mother so and so and then trying to launch off of that um yeah every day i went into the clubhouse that year i was i felt like i was introducing myself to somebody or saying goodbye to somebody and that's not hyperbolic i mean it literally was almost every single day while it was 75 different guys probably 20 to 30 of those guys came and went multiple times. Um, so c- relatively speaking to, to do it with almost exclusively guys who at least had some big league time or were on a prospect radar, meaning there was more stuff written about them um, relatively a lot easier. Um, and I'm not the PR guy. So like we actually have a PR staff that already compiles notes. Um, w- what I like to do a lot though, is I try to find other sources on things um, to lead me to better research. Uh, like one thing I'll do is I'll always watch the the opposing team's broadcasts innings of that starter's last start for at least the first three. And if they're good and they're interesting and they have some other points, I'll watch the entirety of it. Just what he's pitching. I'll, I'll skip past everything else. Um, they're going to know or about their relievers. And uh, and then so I can not only steal some nuggets from that directly with attribution, uh, but I can also then they could say something to trigger something in my head. Well, I wonder if he played with so-and-so, or I wonder if if uh, you know this pitch was always part of his arsenal. And then that'll lead me to another rabbit hole, lead me to meeting a guy in person and asking him some questions. Um, and I would say probably – 90 to 95 percent of the stuff that i find that i have in all these word docs i never use on air because it doesn't fit like it just the right moment doesn't happen or we have to get in a commercial read or the analyst wants to go in a different direction or um but i am terrified of the idea of not being ready for when a moment happens i have two nightmares that recurring would be too strong a word but happen more than once one is i'm looking at a giant tsunami that's like 100 feet tall and I know I'm going to die and there's like nothing I can do. You can get in a car and drive a hundred, like you're toast. It's not happening. And just kind of coming to terms with that as I look at this wall, this giant wave. And the other is that I'm scheduled to be on the air, supposed to be on the air, actually on the air and totally unprepared. I don't know anything about anybody. I don't even know who's playing. And they're like, go, you're on, go. Um, and I think that's part of the anxiety in me. That's both, it both represents it. And I think it fuels it like, that scares the crap out of me. Like I'd never, ever, ever want that to happen. Um, but it's a fair question. Uh, but for me, like compared to some of the other experiences that I've had, it's relatively tame. And uh, and it's, it's kind of fun. Like the nerdy research stuff, there are many times where as much as I love games, there are times I love the nerdy research stuff more. I love finding something out about a person. And being able to like dig deeper, like, oh, wow, look at those connections. That's that's really cool. John, you kind of already touched on it a little bit, but what was your overall thoughts on the trade deadline? Was there any surprises to you and, and kind of your overall thoughts on kind of the direction the team's uh, chosen to go in? Uh, I mean, I thought by virtue of what the record was at that point and where things are, to, to me, 
if you could get value, then you should trade. And I was actually blown away in a good way by what I, the value is that they got. I, to, to be honest, I, I did not think they would get that many pieces that profile that well. Now, does that translate to the big leagues? I mean, I, I, we've talked about this on the air some. No. Like, every single one of those guys is not going to be in the majors. They're just not. I mean, that's just that's the math of if you follow the, uh, the track record of, you know, prospects. As somebody who worked in the minors for a long time, it's not because they don't have talent. It's not because they're not capable, but just stuff happens. It's really, really hard to make the big leagues. It's really, really hard to be successful in the big leagues. Um, but they got so many pieces. Um, you know, Castillo is is assuredly the one that pains you the most. I mean, he's he's a super talent. He's a great dude. He was pitching his butt off. Uh, but to me, it's the right move. I mean, you have to look at what's your competitive window. When are you going to make that run? And, you know, you got three really good young starters. You've got an excellent seeming closer of the future, if he's not already that right now, who I think can handle, you know, at a big, big level. Um, but you need organizational depth, not just to fill the holes. And, and there are abundant holes. There's a lot of spots that need to get filled. But also to leverage and flip to trade for other pieces. It, it, it's not even necessarily the case that all of these prospects themselves are being profiled immediately to plug those holes. At some point, hopefully, the plan would be, right, that within a couple of years' time, when you're the most competitive and really able to challenge to win a division, to, to possibly win a World Series, you're going to be something short. I mean, look at the, the playoff teams right now. And you can go through all of them and say, well, you know, they could really use an extra catcher. They could really use a lefty in the bullpen. They could really use probably one or two more starters. These are playoff teams right now. Um, the easiest, best way to try to achieve that is if you have good prospects that you can trade. And organizations might be willing to give up a good piece for that. Um, I, I think the uh, the haul that, that Nick Kroll got was – above my level of expectation. The bigger question that follows thereafter is how will they handle developing those players? Um, and you know, when will they arrive and in what condition to the big leagues? Uh, I, I think ideally when most teams go, you know, all in on, on this kind of rebuild, you, you try to get core pockets or groups of those prospects bunched together, have them played um, you know, I, I think specifically, I, I spent a lot of time in the Royals farm system. And the, a lot of the guys that were on the teams that I covered were the core of their back-to-back -back World Series teams. And part of their belief when Dayton Moore was still is the GM and J.J. Piccolo was his number two, is that they firmly believed in developing to win and winning to develop. And that the two directly went hand in hand. That, that winning is its own skill that has to be learned. And to do that together makes them all the more prepared when they arrive at the big leagues. Um, and that's something that I'm encouraged by is that we're already seeing some of these dudes get bunched together. Uh, uh, some of them are overlapping in position because there are a lot of guys that are technically uh, shortstops. Uh, but I, I think that will naturally play itself out. You know, some of these guys are, they're going to move to other positions. And if you do find that they're ideally all great at any one, well, then you have a good problem. You might have, if you have that much inventory at one position, you can go to flip that to a, another position of need. John, who are uh, some of the prospects that you are, 
you know, really looking forward to. I'm assuming you don't watch MILB TV every single night, but you know, you're pretty well connected within the organization. Is there anyone that you're, you know, hearing a lot about? Maybe someone, you know, we don't hear as much that that you're really excited uh, uh, about their future with the Reds? Um, I mean, well, Ellie's the obvious choice. I mean, he's just a highlight machine. The dude is just otherworldly amazing with his baseball IQ, the fun factor that he has, the switch hitting, the power, the speed, the defense. Uh, I mean, he, he is, to me, the most dynamic guy. And yeah, and you guys have the, the prospect rankings up. He's now top 15 in all of baseball as uh, MLB Pipeline has uh, rearranged everything. Um, I, I would also say Cam Collier. I am hearing tremendous things about Collier. Uh, his his overall feel that you know the fact that he played up as a 17 year old at a in a good JUCO league against a lot of guys that that have high caliber you know major league type talent is incredibly encouraging. Uh, you know Steer, you know he is at AAA. He does appear to be the guy that's closest. He's pretty versatile defensively. He can play short. He can play second. He can play third. Um, so he by virtue not only of being at the highest level and hitting to some extent at that level and being one of the older guys and so diverse defensively, uh, you know, he's the guy that that's probably going to come right away. Uh, Chase Petty is opening a lot of eyes. Uh, he is a name that I've heard from others in the organization that they have been incredibly pleased with. Um, very, very impressed with his feel um, and his, his overall stuff. And, and I think, uh, yeah, Reese Hines was actually showing that he was hitting for better average before he got hurt. Yeah, and, and he's always had that raw power. Um, and he was starting to put some things together. He would be a little more, you know, lower on the radar kind of a dude um, that has a, a big time skill set. Uh, that it, it, as he kind of becomes more refined and polished, um, and, and that's a word of caution too. So for for those that don't really historically follow the minors all that much. You know, and Carlos can speak to this. The, the rankings, they don't mean a whole lot. You know, it's it's just like these are guys to be aware of. These are guys that have skills. These are guys that have been profiled to some extent. It means nothing. Like there are guys that are not ranked on a prospect list that are great players. They're going to have a really good shot to make the big leagues. There are going to be guys that are ranked that have one or two exceptional tools that it, it may not ever turn out. It may not ever be fully refined. Um, and you know, something that historically always happened, uh, to be honest, I'm a little ignorant to exactly where it is in today's day and age. Baseball America was the definitive prospect resource for many years. And MLB has, has kind of gone all in on covering the minors themselves and pipeline is, has at least seemingly matched them in terms of cachet within the industry. One of the stories that I've always heard was that with baseball America, they they were very researched. They tried to do as good a job as they could, but they're also they're talking to the organization. And so every organization in Major League Baseball, they intentionally at times are going to talk a guy up that maybe isn't quite as good because that's the guy they want to trade. They're going to talk another guy down that they don't want profiled as much because we don't want teams asking for that guy in a trade. Let's point good out politics, more baby. Yeah, it's, it exists everywhere. So. So always take a little grain of salt anytime you see a number structure on who's where. There, there are reasons beyond pure play. Yeah, and it matters uh, who you call within that organization and who's going to be, okay, here's our top prospect. Yes. Because because these guys in the organization don't have the exact same list, one through five. Who's our top guy? And, and that also can be a reason for some 
the minors, who has the ear of the highest decision maker? What scout first saw that guy? Who signed him? What round was he taken in? How much money was he paid? Those all factor huge in the opportunities guys are given, where they're profiled, how they're talked about. But the number one thing that decides it is if you play. If, if you hit, you pitch at a high enough level for a long enough span of time, no matter what the politics say, you're going to be there. I mean, the big league team wants to win. That, that ultimately is what's going to happen. Um, but I, I, I am highly encouraged. I mean, I really do get a feel from those that I talk to within the Reds right now. It feels like the Yankees did when I was at Scranton and they had uh, Luis Severino and Aaron Judge and Chad Green and uh, Labor Torres, it, it feels like that. It feels like when the Royals had Eric Hosmer and a rising Mike Moustakis and Danny Duffy and Greg Holland and Salvador Perez, it, it has that same sense and feel. Will it materialize in the big leagues? I have no idea. I mean, no, nobody really ever knows, but I think they're in the relatively mathematical best spot they can be. They're legitimately a top 10 system in baseball. They could be top five. And that's a bit of a dice roll. That's what trading for prospects is. But it's an informed dice roll where you have a greater sense of probability. So within a season like this, John, um, we talk about like the moments, you know, in each game. We hope, you know, we show up to the ball game and there's a, a memorable moment that's going to come up that we can remember, that we can talk about. Like, you know, yeah, last year was a tough year, but remember when this happened, remember when that happened? You know, that's what makes us fans and make us want to come back and hold on to these special stories that you can tell within a game or with anything. And I couldn't help but, you know, last night during the broadcast, whenever you guys had Eric Davis on, I was like, this is a special moment. Like, <laughs> this is really good stuff. Because you kept, one more, one more? Can you hang on? And, and he kept coming back, and it was great. Can you just speak a little bit on, like, how special of a moment that was? I know you didn't, you know, have a lot. It was kind of like let Barry and, and Eric go back and forth. But can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. it's uh, I, I love Boogie. I mean, he's a great dude. Um, I, I first had an extended chance to chat with him last year. Uh, before the the team was honoring Marty Brenneman with the induction to the Reds Hall of Fame. A number of ex-players were in town. They had that alumni game at the stadium while we were doing the road game from the studio because we weren't traveling at the time. And uh, so there were a series of interviews that were being done to kind of talk about Marty's career. And they asked me to do some of those interviews for what was going to run on the board. And that was my first extended sit-down with Eric. Um, what a fun guy. I mean, his passion and love comes through exquisitely well. Well, I told the story on the air at spring training. I mean, every day that I went to the complex at spring training, he was the guy that I saw on those fields every day. And he was, he was often sprinting from field to field and was incredibly engaged and knew every dude on a personal level. Uh, the, the guy cares desperately. Uh, he also is referenced by Lark, not only on air. I mean, when our headsets go down and we're a commercial, there is an Eric Davis reference, I would say, at least half a dozen times a game, maybe more. It actually has gotten to the point, so uh, a, a little bit of a behind-the-curtain uh, word. I, I don't know if this is ever actually going to see the light of day, but I proposed an idea weeks ago that every time Barry refers to Eric Davis in any way, 
that we have like a jingle of some kind or Eric Davis's voice and then have like an animated Eric Davis come on the screen, like Eric Davis, <laughs> something like that. Uh, I just thought it would be hilarious because I think it would be a way to kind of like poke at Barry, but also celebrate Eric and uh, and just have fun. And, you know, in a night where things might not be going great, it'd be something that could bring a smile to people. Um, but it, there is a, a magic between those two. Like they they each adore each other um, and you can feel that. And I I felt like that broadcast was was us all, you know, and I'm including myself. We're all flies on the wall in the clubhouse while these two guys are playing. I mean, that's just that's who they are. That's authentically them, and that's what makes it wonderful. Um, you know, some of Eric's opinions on the game today, I don't necessarily agree with, but I love his passion and I respect where he's coming from. Um, I listen to him on everything that he says. And and that was that was pure magic. He did. Uh, unfortunately, wasn't on air. He did give a little bit of play by play right after we went to break at one point. Dang it. And it was sensational. But he was I think, you know, Lark was that's kind of what they do to each other. You know, putting him on the spot, you know, trying to take him to the fire. Of course. A little bit. Um, but yeah. And to me, the probably the moment that I took away most from it was yeah, it was a story that I was somewhat familiar with, but it was the finish to it. When Barry spoke to him about the glove slap on the leg, and he said that that was the, you know, the nonverbal way that he communicated to pitchers that don't worry, I got this ball. Like I, I, I'm going to catch it. Don't, don't have any kind of sense of panic. And when I referenced to him, which is true, like there's probably a dozen guys on our crew that grew up in Cincinnati or even were grown men adults in Cincinnati. And that when they played Little League or Men's League or softball, they slapped their glove on their leg. Like some of them still to this day still do that because of Eric Davis. And, you know, for him to in the moment just say like, well, that's good because that means I brought joy and something good to other people. And people say those kind of things. He means it. Like he, you know, he, he did well enough in his career. He doesn't have to be on the backfields at spring training. He doesn't have to be telling these stories with us on the air. He's not getting compensated. He's he's there to be fun to 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 help sell the game and the franchise. And um, I thought it was excellent TV. Uh, it was tremendous fun. I hope to have him back again in the future. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I can imagine him and Johnny Bench together. Just you and Barry go grab a hot dog or something. Let them go. <laughs> I don't know. We might have to sign some waivers or something, <laughs> but those two together, holy cow, that would be amazing. Um, another special moment um, that I took away, like even from today's game, was Aquino's play in right field to double up early on. Holy cow, that ball took him to the warning track. His body was still going towards the running track. He turns around and throws an absolute seed to first base. I don't think this play is going to get enough recognition like everybody's going, oh it's one of the top you know five plays of the night but this was extremely tough and he's been doing this over and over and over all year and years past like he's just he's a great athlete he has a very strong feel his arm is not only so strong but it's so accurate and, and that's the the oddity like there are some peers of his that can have similar arm strength um or that can be insanely accurate his ability to do both, and I, I would totally agree with you that, you know, he didn't get the gr- best read on that ball. That's a hard ball to read. He starts in, and then he realizes, oh, crap, 
that that ball's going deep. It's going nearly to the wall. So he has to pivot, turn around, sprint straight out, off balance with extension, make a staggered stride catch, and then spin and have the immediate presence of mind to not only recognize, but that's a split-second decision. I'm going to release this ball. I'm bringing everything I got, and I'm firing to first base. And uh, there's a lot of instinct. There's a lot of training. There's a lot of practice. I mean, the Reds practice those outfield throws. That's the reason why their relays have been so pristine. You know, the Barrero relay the other day was amazing. The 93-mile-an-hour throw to the plate. Tommy Pham was excellent at it all year. But Aquino is just another level of that presence of mind and that physical raw execution. I mean, that arm is a big reason why he is one of the top defensive run save guys in the game. And and in a fractional amount of games as his competition, uh, that, that just tells you what a weapon he is defensively. Um, and, and a dude that is beloved in that clubhouse. You know, the, the game when he came back on the road, you could just see faces light up at the sight of him being there. And you could feel the warmth and the legitimate hugs. If these weren't, you know, a fist pound like taps. Oh, hey, welcome back, dude. They were ecstatic that he was back. And and that play is a huge reason why, because he is a weapon. Yeah, it was definitely fun. And so you talk about, um, you know, how it wasn't the best of reads. I've got just a, you know, kind of a random question. We, we got lucky enough whenever we all went up to Cincinnati to watch a couple of games. We got the, the bird's eye view of, you know, to see those those plays at Great American Ballpark, the ball's being hit. How difficult is, tell the average viewer how difficult it is to view if a ball is being hit, like in a clutch moment, deep into left field, if it's gone or not. Like, how are you supposed to be able to not get too excited, but then, you know, if it does go out, you want to make the whole call last the entire time? Like, how difficult is that? Do you think you're getting better throughout the year? Because there's moments where, I mean, I've, you know, we've all seen thousands of, innings of baseball games and at home it's almost easier to see than it is from your view and on a swing i'm like oh he got him and i'm like oh he left fielder didn't even move a bit like how was it for you do you think about that yeah the uh so that's one of the great contrasts for me um big league to minors the two minor league parks i was in were the least home run friendly for their level so the the wilmington blue rocks and all of high a and Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, and all of AAA were most years in their existence had the lowest home run rate at their level in the country. Um, you know, Frawley Stadium, the saying we had at the time was that's where fly balls go to die. Because if you're a right-handed power hitter, you hit the ball to you know left center, it, you, you got no shot. It's it just it's going to be crushed. Um, and Scranton could be similar. Uh, the The – center field and just in the interior of the gaps the ball just it didn't really go and it just it the distance wasn't the entirety that was part of it but the ball just didn't carry great american ballpark's the opposite the great american ballpark is one of the most home run friendly stadiums in major league baseball it's about 1.7 home runs per game or something like that i read the other day um there are balls that clear there that will not clear at most places and so you're taught early and and I say taught, I mean, you kind of, we're all self-taught. Nobody really sits us down and helps us with this to read the outfielder. Um, this year, it's been more difficult to read outfielders than most other years. Uh, and I think some of it early on, I haven't noticed it as much recently, was probably the baseball. 
that it did vary a little bit part to part. I mean, we even saw it this homestand. I'm trying to remember, was it two nights ago? There was a ball that was sent to left center, and on the swing, Papirski leaps up. He's catching and spins around in frustration like, oh, crap, that's a home run. And it, it's well hit, but it's not a home run. Um, so I think that tells you a little bit when the catcher, who has the greatest view possible, who called the pitch, who saw where it landed, who saw the swing, seemingly by body language is saying that's definitely gone and that it's not gone um, is, is a big part of it. Uh, to me, I always want to try to match the moment. Um, so I'm okay with the idea of, of front selling more. Um, I have tried to pull back more often in doing that. Uh, calling games off a monitor for half of a season too, in some ways made that worse. Um, our view was honestly, I think, worse than I would have been better off calling it from my couch than I would have from the studio. Um, just the way the whole setup worked. I, I think because they knew it was impermanent. Uh, there were a number of small things that I had asked for that I was told were not possible. Um, they were not just asked by me. It turns out as we got deeper in the year and I spoke to other major league play-by-play guys, they had all asked for basically the same thing. Some got it, some did not. And that there was no real rhyme or reason to how that arrived. Um, but yeah, that's still something that uh, I feel like I am getting better at. I still get surprised at great American ballpark sometimes by balls that are hit that turn out to be home runs that I did not think would be at first. And that's something that last year's team challenged me on even more because the, the you know, Castellanos and Winker, and I mean, they hit some balls that were just like, all right, put it in the air. Oh, it's still going. Oh, oh crap. That's like four rows in. Um, but particularly I would say the way the ball can carry to like true right, right center, um, and then just over that wall down the left field line, there, there are balls that off the bat I don't think are going to go that do. And then some of the balls that are sent to more center and inside gap is the opposite. That, that'll happen from time to time. Yeah. And like talking to Joey even this year, um, he's like, there's balls that I've hit that I thought were 12, 15 rows deep, and they didn't even make it to the warning track. Yep. Is like the the sound, the swing, the pitch, everything. I mean, he's been in the league longer than he would know more than any of us, and he still doesn't know. So to expect you know someone like you or a radio guy to to be able to to be nails on it every time is that I don't think it's possible. Yeah, and and I think also um, yeah that's something that Fam talked about a lot uh, that we looked at. Uh, exit velo and the, you look at the exit velo on the launch angle and it doesn't necessarily marry up uh, balls that would be hit almost exactly the same in the same ballpark often in the same series would have dramatically different carry now yes spin is a giant part of that too um, but I, I think we heard that more from a variety of players this year and it was grossly inconsistent at different times that ball was either carrying truer was not carrying at all and and the hitter will tell you a lot too like you just look at their body language and you can see sometimes the hitter is convinced that it's gone and then yeah, that crestfallen moment of like what the heck happened that's one of the craziest things to me is i just don't understand how this is not a bigger deal you know imagine if they had different basketballs every time when these guys were shooting 
imagine the footballs. I mean, we went through the whole deflate gate thing and that's just like baseball. It's just like, yeah, whatever. It's part of it. Keep going. It's a, it's a huge freaking deal. It is. It is. It's uh, and, and I do think national writers have done a very good job of, of profiling it. Um, I mean, heck, like I guess they, the public's not picking it up enough, like or caring about it, which is odd to me. That is, yes, and I would agree with that. I mean, I, and also, it's a public that I think there's been some layers like that for years. Uh, the inconsistency and balance of schedule. I, I don't think the average person ever realizes. Like, if you ask the the baseball fans do, but there are many people that watch baseball or go to baseball games that maybe don't totally fit that uh, that informed fan view. Um, if you ask them, like, who do teams play every year? Does everybody play the same teams? Is it the same kind of schedule? I think a lot of people or a surprising number would probably default and just be like, yeah, well, then, no, no, they will in the coming schedule. Um, but that's not generally historically been the case. John, uh, are you uh, calling any uh, games for CBS Sports this fall? Any Anywhere we can look for you? Uh, yes, I will be back as soon as the Reds ends. So uh, we end on that Wednesday in October. That Thursday morning, I'll be on a flight to D.C. I'll be doing uh, the Navy football game that week. So I'll work the, the two Navy games that happen after the, the red season concludes. Uh, then I'll also have uh, three Mountain West games, a couple of MAC games. I, I don't know the locations. I may not know until like a week beforehand. I'll do Army-Navy again on the radio. Uh, I've been doing that now for almost a decade. That's my favorite single game that I get to work every year. Um, and then uh, I'll be working – some NFL, I'm not sure exactly what yet. Uh, oftentimes it's Thanksgiving week, uh, the triple header they would have the week before the Christmas holiday, the Christmas holiday, and then a, a playoff game or two with the expanded playoffs. Uh, but that's all TBD. But, yeah, I'll be pretty much on a football game every week that Saturday as soon as Reds ends, um, and then likely between 25 and 30 basketball games once that schedule comes out. Any chance you'll be calling that um, Navy game November 12th at noon uh, when the football team from South Bend, Indiana goes to visit them? Uh, unfortunately, no. So in the past, CBS would have the rights to the uh, the Navy home game against Notre Dame, regardless of where it is. Uh, but when the Americans' new deal with ESPN got enacted, ESPN ABC now owns the rights uh, because <sighs> of the, the league rights. Yeah, yeah. So, I used to get so heartbroken when I would do Xavier basketball games this year and there would be a CBS game and it wasn't you. I'd be like, <laughs> oh, we're going to go see hey, say hey to John in the media room and you weren't, it wasn't you. I was always upset. Yeah, who do, uh, who do we need to, who do we need to contact on that? Who do we need to, <laughs> to pester to get you at least one game this year? You know, yeah. uh, if there's anybody that would, uh, that would yearn for a quasi home game, um, it would be my wife, uh, would be the big champion of that. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, the math was we aired somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 games that were within about 45 minutes of our home. And I think I did zero. So, <laughs> But I had a really good schedule. I had games that I really enjoyed, um, some big-time matchups. Um, so I'm very grateful and, and, uh, and happy to do whatever they'll have me do. Uh, but I will never, ever, ever turn down sleeping in my own bed to work a game, ever. Yeah, I feel that, man. I definitely I did some traveling this uh, last couple seasons for basketball, so it's like working these home games. I'll, I will not trade for the world. How are the Musketeers looking? 
they're going to be fun. They're going to be fun. Um, you know, the general consensus is still not out how long Miller will be gone. Uh, Cause it does sound like it's kind of inevitable, but the guess has been about five to six games. No one has that for sure. Um, but I don't think they're necessarily worried on a seven year contract about five to six games. So. Yeah. Uh, UAB conference USA championship game. That was fun. I only got put on that tournament late. I was supposed to be on the Mac tournament originally. And then they asked me probably a week or so beforehand, uh, would you be willing to switch to, to conference? But I had UAB in the NCAA tournament uh, on radio. I wound up in uh, Pittsburgh for the NCAA. And it's. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the arena was great. I got to be with Fran Fraschilla. Um, Fran was actually talking about coming down for the uh, the end of the Orioles series because he was in Dayton doing uh, the basketball tournament. Uh, and Bob Rathbun, who does the Hawks, uh, the two of them were going to come down and go to the ball game, and and uh, and then something came up. But yeah. but yeah, between uh, Dayton or Xavier or Miami of Ohio, uh, I will gladly, gladly, gladly take that short drive uh, rather than be on a commercial airline at any time that's possible. Well, we got some really awesome, a couple quick questions from the chat before we get out sure. of here. And um, this from from our good friend, Sydney Price. Uh, she talks about Spencer Steer, who was part of the uh, Tyler Malley trade from the Minnesota Twins. Uh, could Steer take Votto's spot on the roster tomorrow? This is a unique one because this is a guy that played the Futures game this year, was a top 10 prospect in a good twin system, um, and also you know brought a lot of excitement uh, as far as you know got things they got back. And our good friend Clay Snowden tweeted today um, that he's like, you know, with, jo- with Joey Votto being out, it's time to get Spencer Steer as many at-bats as you possibly can. So I certainly hope so. I hope he's the guy that gets called up. Um, I want to see what he can do like everyone else. I'm excited to see about it. You know, his potential seems to be pretty high. So, Yeah, I, I, I think it's certainly possible. Um, you know, the, the, the other wrinkle that I don't know is what's the window of time for Mike Moustakis to be coming back from the IL. Um, I believe he could be activated on Friday. And yeah, I think I tomorrow, know. I think he's able to, is what they said today on Twitter. Yeah, but no, but no game tomorrow. So, right, right, right. Yeah. It'd be the first game day that he'd be eligible. Gotcha. Um, and he was doing some work on the field. Um, and if Kyle Farmer is the everyday third baseman and Jose Barrero is the everyday shortstop and you know, hopefully India is, you know, fully healthy. He's the everyday second baseman. Um, you know, Solano, I would think is going to be back from paternity leave relatively soon. Uh, and you want to get him a decent amount of advance. And he's been a really productive bat first would make a lot of sense for Moustakis. Um, so I, I, I think it depends. Like if, if you call him up, I agree, you'd want to give him a lot of at bats. Um, so where do you give him those at bats and who is losing at bats to give him at bats? Um, I am all for as many young players as possible. Uh, that's something that that Barry has has talked about at great length. That he would like to see as many at bats for young guys. I would like to see T.J. Friedel get a lot of at bats. He's had a couple of really good months at AAA. I thought he had some good at bats in these two big league games that he had, um, and he brings a speed element that is not there that helps layer this this lineup a little bit. Um, but everything I've heard on Steer has been super positive about his polish and his acumen. I think he'd be very capable. I, I would be encouraged by whatever he could do at a big league level. Um, at, could he? Yes. Will he? I don't know. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. So this one from our good pal Reds and Four is John, is there a sport you've never called you still want to? I'm curious on this too, because when you were on the Jim Day podcast, there was a certain answer you gave last year that definitely excited me. So I'm seeing if it's still the same results. Um, uh, tennis is definitely one. Uh, I've never done tennis. Um, I've always loved Wimbledon. I, I just, I love the magic of that event. I loved when HBO had it for years. Uh, there was a certain austere feel to just how they presented it. Uh, I've never done NHL hockey. I would love to do NHL hockey. I've done college hockey, which was a ton of fun, but NHL hockey is a, another speed, another level. Um, I'd also love to, uh, I, I've uh, been able to audition for these kinds of roles in the past. I've never actually earned one. I would love to be the voice of a sports-related video game. Um, as somebody who is a gamer and grew up loving, um, you know, NHL 94 is very near and dear to my heart. The MVP series and PS2 is very near and dear. The old NCAA football, I treasured and adored. Um, I would, I just think that's such a cool concept. Um, you know, I got to fly to a studio and I did a few like mock recordings. Um, it didn't happen, but wow, that, that would be really, really cool to be able to play a game. And uh, somebody, you know, played Joe Montana sports talk football back in the day. There's a lot that I still would like to do. I've been very lucky. But, yes, there are still many things that I would like to try to do at some point in my career. And and who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll be lucky and have a chance to do so. This is from Chase Highcamp, friend of the program, solid listener. Thoughts on the Michael Harris contract and what it means for a possible India Stevenson extension. So for those who aren't aware, uh, the Braves gave Michael Harris a eight-year, $72 million contract uh, in a roundabout way. Nick can probably say this better than I can, just more or less avoiding arbitration. Um, so when his contract's up, it can be possible that he can be an unrestricted free agent and they don't have to bid every year. Um, do you? So what kind of – I think it's I think it's smart. I think the Braves have done this with a few different players now. Um, it makes a lot of sense as far as like you don't have to go through arbitration year in year out for these guys. And I'm not against the Reds doing this for Indian Stevenson, um, especially right now. I think they kind of did this. Nick, correct me if I'm wrong with Suarez, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I think it's possible. I mean, it's not necessarily total novel territory. I mean, to that point, with Eugenio, the Braves. I mean, outside of Dansby Swanson, they pretty much have everybody else locked up. They've They've clearly organizationally gone in that direction. The Yankees did basically the same thing with Luis Severino. Um, it's, I, I would be all for it. I mean, these are cornerstone guys that have uh, produced, you know, with their service experience to this point. They are adored by the fans. And I think it can be a win-win on both sides. You know, the players can get more years and money guaranteed. But on a relative level, the team gets a bargain that, you know, if the player performs at a super high level, he undoubtedly would have made more otherwise. I mean, with the Braves, Ozzie Albies, I, I have zero doubt that if Ozzie Albies selected to instead just ride out what he had and then eventually pursue free agency, he'd make way more money. But at some point, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions. How much money is enough? How much does security mean? Um, I, I think there's certainly a chance that they could try to explore something like that. Um, but I... I don't know. That's a, that's an that's an excellent question. I, I I would I did not yet listen to. I know Nick yeah, that that you did the Jim Day interview with Nick Crawl. Um, and, and I don't know if awesome. that was brought up at any point during that, or if that was exclusively just more fleshing out of the prospects. I have it downloaded. 
I plan on listening to it probably tomorrow. I'm going to do a run in the neighborhood. Um, but th that's something I'd have to I'd have to talk to Nick about and kind of get a feel for. I'm not sure what the organization's view is on that. Yeah, very good interview. I don't I don't think they touched on that. It was uh, it was it was kind of short and sweet. Uh, I think I think Nick was kind of in between 18 billion different things and. But as yeah, really, Jim mentions really, his really, really phone good. goes off a couple times yeah. during it. So <laughs> I, think, I think Jim was like, "Hey, I gotta get this guy out of here. He's gotta get to work." <laughs> yeah, it was it was really good. We I really enjoyed it too. So I, if I can, just one last one because I've we've had you on the show three times now, and you've talked multiple times about the fact that you were in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So you probably know where this question's going. But were you ever there for the office parade? So they had a reunion of everyone at the stadium where the rail riders played in advance of the series going going off the air and everybody i knew at that point in my life texted me called me sent me a message on facebook are you going to be there do you have pictures steve carell was not originally announced he did go he was there they had the event at the rail rider stadium which meant the team was not playing at the Rail Rider Stadium. So I was at whatever North Division team we were playing during the course of that day. Uh, if there's any one regret that I have of a game that I announced, it was probably that one. I probably should have done everything possible to take the game off, but I, I felt... Got to use that PTO, John. Got to use that PTO. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sadly, I was not physically there for the event. Um, I love the show. Uh, yeah, it's, it's something that my wife and I watched, um, the first, what, probably three or four seasons of together. Um, one of the, the excellent seminal comedies of our time. There's a lot of references in that, um, that are based on truths of Scranton that I learned over time. There's also some things that happened in that show that can't be possible. Like having the Dundies at a Chili's. There is no Chili's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> but since I left there, that doesn't exist. So that, that can't happen. Pam's not getting loaded and there are no Dundies at a Chili's in Scranton. There is no Chili's in Scranton. That's hilarious. I did not realize that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I, I was like, I can't believe I've had you on three times and we've not asked you this yet. So I had to make sure I got it in before we got out of here tonight. Um, but with that being said, uh, we're going to go ahead and close out this week's edition of Late Night Reds Talk Live, brought to you by Bet Online to Believe Podcast Network. Uh, thank you guys, for as always, for tuning in. Thanks for the great questions with John. Uh, really cool special coming up this Sunday at 9 o'clock p.m. Nick and our good friend Clay Stoden, who was aforementally mentioned earlier in the show, uh, are going to be doing a really cool special at 9 p.m. that you can check out on all the Places of choice, like always, called Building the Next Great Reds Team, looking at the Reds talk special, looking at 2024 Cincinnati Reds and beyond, uh, 2024 being kind of the year that's kind of mentioned as the target for competing again. Uh, so Nick and Clegg do a pretty big deep dive into this uh, that is I'm really looking forward to checking out as well. So uh, thank you guys again for tuning in. Be sure to give us that nice, solid five-star review, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, you name it, where you get your podcast of choice. And also, if you are more of a YouTube kind of person, check out our YouTube channel, Late Night Reds, Nick Kirby, where you can get all of our awesome, awesome video broadcasts and subscribe and leave some cool comments. We're definitely always a big fan of that as well. So thank you, John. Thank you, guys. Don't forget to go to Bet Online, get that Believe 50 bonus, and we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks, John. We love you, buddy. Thank you all. I love you guys, too. Keep crushing.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.